Father, we are here today because of Jesus. We're here today because of what he has done, not because of what we have done. We are wholly dependent upon him, and so even as we come right now to open your word, we do so knowing that even our ability to listen, our ability to apply, our ability to receive it is dependent upon Jesus, and so we ask for your help now. We sit here humbly as your people, wanting to hear your word so that we can become more like your son, and so give us grace to do so. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, please turn your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. While you turn there, let me just say it's a delight to be with you. I love this church. I pray for this church regularly. The church that I pastor, Redeemer Community Church, just south of Raleigh, North Carolina, we pray for you in our services uh, regularly. Uh, we're thankful for your partnership in the gospel. It warmed my heart to hear you praying for Jesse and Heather Nelson um, we partner together with you in sending them um, to Montenegro, and so it's just a delight to be with you and to see the good evidence of God's grace at work here. I read recently about Abraham Lincoln. He was running for the U when he was running for the U.S. Senate. He was participating in a series of debates with Stephen Douglas. Douglas was quite a speaker. In fact, a much better speaker than Lincoln was, and he would go on for a long time, and in his remarks, he would often criticize Lincoln very severely. In fact, he went so far as to call him two-faced in one of their debates. When it was Lincoln's turn to speak, he looked out at the crowd, and he responded to Douglas's criticism by pointing at his own face and saying, honestly, if I were two-faced, would I be showing you this one? Well, the crowd burst out into laughter, and Lincoln moved on to other topics. Wouldn't it be great if it was always that easy to deal with criticism? Right? You could just, just a witty one-liner, and the criticism disappears. But it rarely works like that. When criticism comes, and it always does, we normally respond to criticism one of two ways, either with despair or with defensiveness. So if if we think the criticism's accurate, or if it comes from someone unexpected, that often drives us to despair. If we think the criticism is wrong, it's unfair, then we stiffen our necks and we defend ourselves, and then often our defensiveness turns into an attack on the person criticizing us. Which way do you tend to respond to criticism? I think most of us fall into one of those two camps. Are you defensive? Your inner lawyer sort of comes up and you're, like, you're ready to, to go head-to-head -head, like Tom Cruise with Jack Nicholson, like arguing and winning your point. Maybe you respond a little more like Eeyore or sadness and inside out. You just sort of dissolve into a puddle of despair and self-pity. What about as a church? How will you handle criticism as a church? Because it's going to come at some point as you continue to obey Jesus. And some of it may be fair, right? This is a church filled with sinners. A lot of it may be unfair because you're following Jesus and the world hates Jesus. So how will you handle it as a church? In the, this letter to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians, Apostle Paul's overriding concern is about what shapes this church's outlook on life. 
And as, he, as he's ministered through this church, he's realized that they still look at life through the lens of culture. They look at life through the lens of family and geography. And his goal in this letter is to show them how the cross of Jesus Christ is the thing and the only thing that should shape how we view the world and everything in it. And that includes how we view criticism and handle it both individually and as a church. The cross changes how we handle criticism. We're going to see how this works as the Apostle Paul deals with some criticism he's received because of some choices that he's made in ministry. You see, he changed his travel plans. And some opponents of his, some who were, had actually crept into this church and were trying to turn them away from the gospel, they, they took his changes as a sign that he's no longer trustworthy. In fact, this is what they were telling other people. You see, you can't trust Paul. He, he's deceptive. He, he's two-faced. He's dishonest. Look at Paul. He, he says he'll do one thing and he does another. He'll make a promise, but then he won't come through. And his response to their criticism shows us how to deal with criticism in light of the cross. Look at their criticism. It begins in verse 15. So 2 Corinthians 1 verse 15. He writes this. He says, because of this confidence, I planned to come to you first so that you could have a second benefit and to visit you on my way to Macedonia and then come to you again from Macedonia and be helped by you on my journey to Judea. Now here, you can hear the criticism in his next question. Verse 17, now when I planned this, was I of two minds? That's what people were saying. Or what I plan, do I plan in a purely human way so that I say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Again, this is what they're saying. Verse 18, as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. So Paul said, my original plan was to visit you on the way to Macedonia and then on the way back. In fact, he had told them at the end of 1 Corinthians that this was his plan. But then he changed his plans. And we're going to see why later. But those who are trying to undermine Paul's message seized on this change of plans and started to sow seeds of distrust. They told the church that Paul deliberately lied to them. That he was using them for his own purposes, that he couldn't be trusted. They claimed that Paul would simultaneously say absolutely and definitely not. Right? That he spoke out of both sides of his mouth. Let me just warn you, brothers and sisters, you need to prepare for criticism. In chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, earlier than this, the passage that precedes this one, we're told that affliction comes to all who follow Jesus, and sometimes affliction comes in the form of unjust criticism. We follow Jesus. Jesus was sinless. But was he free from criticism? Read his ministry in the Gospels. He's criticized constantly, and he never sinned. Of course we who follow him will be criticized. This is not something new. This has happened since the first days of Christianity. Because of the loss of income associated with Christians who refused to purchase idols, they were often subject to false charges. In fact, one Roman historian, Tacitus, described some of the, the various forms of persecution that were suffered by Christians under the reign of Emperor Nero. And he actually, in his writing, says those charges were false, but he goes on to say the real reason Christians were persecuted is because of their hatred for mankind. So what, what was the hatred for mankind the Christians were being charged with? Well, it's this, they refused to condone all of these other gods. 
and they refused to practice the sort in the religious festivals that celebrated them. Listen, you will face criticism both as an individual and as a church, and some of it will be fair, and most of it will be unfair. And how you respond depends on your understanding of the cross and how willing you are to let the cross shape your actions. So let's look this morning at the Apostle Paul as he provides a model for us as he deals with criticism that he's facing. How does the cross shape his response? How should the cross shape ours? First, when criticism comes, examine your life, especially motives. When criticism comes, examine your life, especially motives. So if we see ourselves in light of the cross, then when criticism comes, our first move will be to suspect ourselves. Suspect ourselves. Because we understand that we are sinners. In fact, we understand, at least in part, the depth of our sin. We recognize that no person can say anything worse about us than what the cross says about us. Because the cross says that my sin is so deep and so pervasive that the only remedy for my sin was for the Son of God to die in my place. I am so bad that Jesus had to die for me. Like, that's what the cross says about who I am. And so when someone says something bad about us, our first thought should be, well, it could be true. I'm a sinner. In fact, I'm a worse sinner than they realize. And so we begin to interrogate our own heart. So in light of the criticism Paul received, he looks inward. Was this criticism fair? Was it accurate? And and we see this personal examination in verses 12 through 14. So look at verse 12. He says, indeed, this is our boast. The testimony of our conscience is that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially toward you with godly sincerity and purity. Not by human wisdom, but by God's grace. For we are writing nothing to you, Other than what you can read and also understand, I hope you will understand completely, just as you have partially understood us, that we are your reason for pride, just as you also are in the day of the Lord Jesus. So Paul here does not claim sinlessness, but he does claim sincerity, that the charges against him that are... the charge is, remember, are that he acted in a, a duplicitous manner, that he's deceptive. And so Paul examines himself in light of God's word, and the outcome is that he is not underhanded, that he is not dishonest, but that he has acted before them in a sincere, transparent way. He says his motives and his actions and his message, verse 12, come from godly sincerity and purity. His motives are uncontaminated and his actions unpolluted. I remember in high school English, one of the novels we had to read was The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Or did anyone else have to read that? Were they, you forced, subjected to that? Well, there's a line in there so one of the characters in there, he, he says to the minister this line, a, a pure hand needs no glove to cover it. A pure hand needs no glove to cover it. Now, the irony of this was that he says it to the minister who in the story is, um, it's a spoiler alert from a 300-year-old book, okay? So I hope that's okay. Right? Is the minister is the one who has something to hide. The minister the one who is deceptive and hiding sin, who in fact, it was his glove and it was his hand, if you will, that was being covered. 
And what the Apostle Paul says here, basically, is like, I'm not like that minister. There's not a secret life. There's, there's nothing I'm hiding. There's nothing sinister or deceptive in me. And he, and he goes out to sort of spell this out, that he has no secret motives, that he has no secret actions, that he has no secret message. Because the main charge here is that Paul has secret motives. That he's got a secret agenda. Paul is an undercover villain. His critics contend that he is using the, the Christians in this church for his own purpose, that in some way he's using them to bolster his own reputation. Now, now I love how Paul defends against this charge. The way he defends about it is he talks about how he does boast. Almost like, so they'll be like, aha, but then he flips the concept of boasting upside down. Paul doesn't boast in himself, and he doesn't boast in his own successes. He boasts in them, and he boasts in the cross of Jesus, and he boasts in his own weakness. 25 times in this letter, Paul tells, talks about boasting, but he never boasts in what people normally boast in. You see, the cross of Jesus has changed his boasting. We know this from his other letters, that before he was a Christian, Paul boasted, but he boasted in his knowledge. And he boasted in his religious zeal, and he boasted in his morality, and he boasted in his success. But notice what he says here. Verse 12, he says, I boast in God's grace. And verse 14, I boast in other people. To boast in God's grace is to boast in the fact that you don't deserve it. So Paul's boasting is anti-boasting, right? He boasts in other people. Verse 14, he says, you are our reason for pride. This is reverse boasting. So Paul says, listen, I'm not out there printing posters of myself, autographing them and handing them to adoring fans. I'm out there handing them pictures of you. This is a stark contrast to the boasting that was going on in him. Right? In that day when people were successful, what did they do? They commissioned an artist to paint a portrait of them. Or they, they paid a sculptor to capture their likeness in stone. Right? That was the ancient equivalent, equivalent of Instagram stories and Facebook posts. Right? Like today, they wanted everyone to know how great they were. But Paul, verse 12, boasts in how God's grace has worked in him to produce sincerity of heart and life. And then he boasts in the good work that God is doing in the lives of these Christians, right? So Paul's saying the the evidence of God's work is not a statue of me. It's not a portrait of my likeness. It's you. You know, to boast in others is not arrogant. We do this all all the time, and this is entirely appropriate. Have you ever had a doctor that was really, really good? And what do you do? You tell people about him, like, oh, I have the best doctor. Hey, like, almost like we're looking, are you sick? If you are, like, there's someone I'd recommend. He's great. Is that arrogant of you? Did you do something to, to train this doctor? No, you're boasting in him. What about if, if you, have, you have a great meal? Like, if I go home and I boast in the brisket I ate yesterday, which I would do. That was fantastic, Jacob. And I'm thankful that it's, the smells are not wafting in while I'm speaking because it's a little distracting. But if I, if I boast in Jacob's great brisket, am I boasting in myself? Is this about me? Or maybe you boast about a beautiful view that you stumbled upon or maybe an amazing new song you heard. Right? Our boasting 
in these moments is not self-centered. We're not, we're not praising the good that we've done. We're praising the good we've received, that we've experienced. And so Paul here is he's praising the good that he's experienced because of God's work in his life and the life of this church. And so he's not motivated, as these critics claim, by a desire to make his name great at their expense. His motives are unmixed. He has acted in complete transparency. No secret motives. No secret actions as well. Look at verse 12. He says, we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially toward you with godly sincerity and purity. Paul's like, I'm not hiding anything. He looks at how he has behaved both inside the church and outside the church, and he says, there's no hypocrisy. I don't act one way when I'm with you and another way with another group. I don't pretend to be something with you and then act a different way when I'm away from you. Let me just say, brothers and sisters, there is freedom and power that comes from living a transparent life. I'm sure we've all had times in our lives when we knew we were acting hypocritically, when we had something to hide. What's that like? We're sort of like kids at school just waiting to be called to the principal's office. Right? It's miserable. Somebody says, hey, I want to talk to you, and you're like, oh, no. That's a miserable way to live. So I need to ask you, are you hiding something right now? Is there a double life you're living? Like freedom comes through honesty and openness and transparency. You can, by the grace of God, you can live with a clear conscience. And so I just, I invite you to stop hiding if you're hiding something and step into the light. Like confess that sin today before you leave to another Christian. Not so they can absolve you, but so they can walk with you into the light. So Paul's examination of his life is that there's no secret motives and no secret actions and no secret messages. That's his point in verse 13. He's like, everything I've written to you, you can, just, you can take it at face value. I've communicated honestly and openly. I didn't say one thing, but really meant another. He's like, in verse 14, he's like, it's, it's possible there's, there's misunderstanding, but it's not because of misleading. I have st- I've been striving to communicate clearly. There's no double meanings. I don't, I'm not passive-aggressive. When I said I was planning to come, I really meant it. I've always been clear with you about my life. And this is the truth. My plans are not my own. Now, the reason Paul's ministry has been marked with such transparency is because he understands where it's headed. He mentions in verse 14, the day of the Lord. This is the final day when all people stand before the Lord in judgment. And in that day, all hidden and secret things will be revealed. And that's, that coming day motivated Paul. And it motivated him to refuse anything manipulative. Because he understood, like, God's going to interrogate this in the end day. So anything manipulative is just going to be exposed. So I'm, I just reject that. He's clear throughout First and Second Corinthians. I reject anything underhanded, anything deceptive. But the day of the Lord also reminds him that he is seeking the ultimate good of those he's ministering to. Because their acceptance of him is not his ultimate goal. His ultimate goal is to present them before God at the final judgment. Like that's what motivates him. 
You see, human wisdom tells us that what we need to spend our lives pursuing are treasures that rust, are treasures that corrode. Right? Human wisdom is the equivalent of buying a metal detector to finance your retirement instead of simply setting money aside. Right? God says, no, seek lasting treasure. This is real wisdom. And what Paul says is that as I have examined my life in light of this criticism, what I found is that I am seeking lasting treasure. My motives are pure. I'm doing everything in light of the fact that one day I will stand before the Lord and I want to stand before the Lord with you. So when criticism comes, the cross teaches you to examine your life, especially your motives. After examining your life, number two, defend the gospel, not yourself. So examine your life, especially your motives, then defend the gospel, not yourself. So the criticism of Paul's change in plans has actually sort of bled into a criticism of his message. Right? So that here's the subtext. Can we really trust what Paul says about God if, if we can't trust what he says about visiting us? And so because their criticism of him has bled into the gospel, Paul must defend himself against the criticism. Now, now if you're familiar with Paul's writings and you're familiar with the book of Acts, you know that the Paul doesn't always defend himself. In fact, he often chooses not to defend himself. There are many times he simply leaves the criticism in God's hands, but whenever the criticism undermines the gospel, then he addresses it. And so Paul here begins with the defense of God's faithfulness. Look at verse 18. As God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, did not become yes and no. On the contrary, in him it is always yes. For every one of God's promises is yes in him. Therefore, through him we also say amen to the glory of God. Now it is God who strengthens us together with you in Christ and who has anointed us. He has also put his seal on us and given us the spear in our hearts as a down payment. So can God be trusted? And Paul's answer in verse 20 is that God has fulfilled all of his promises in Jesus Christ. Every pledge God made is kept through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That his death and his resurrection prove God's faithfulness to his people. This claim Paul makes is why we interpret all of the Bible in light of Jesus Christ. This is why we read the Old Testament with Jesus at the center, because all of God's promises lead to Jesus. We testify then to God's promise keeping every time we pray in Jesus' name and respond with amen. That's his point in verse 20. We're affirming our belief that God keeps his promises. God can be trusted because God is the one who establishes us and anoints us and seals us and guarantees our future. As Paul describes the work of God in his life, and the work of God in the lives of these Christians, he seems to have two goals in mind. First, he wants them to understand the faithfulness of God. He basically says, look at, look at all that God has done. You can trust him. And second, he wants them to know that his identity is based upon what God says about him, not what they say about him. He sort of says, look at what God says about me. I belong to him. My identity is not defined by the criticism. 
So how has God demonstrated his faithfulness? Well, his point here is that he establishes his people in Christ, that our source of strength is not found in our own ability. We find strength in Christ, that Christ is the sure and steady foundation we build our lives upon. So when the storms of affliction rage or the winds of criticism blow, we don't keep ourselves standing. Christ does that. And when God calls us to do something difficult, we don't look for additional reservoirs of internal strength. We look to Christ for power to obey. In fact, he has this picture that we are sort of like Israel's kings and prophets who were anointed by God for the work he called them to do. And he says, you too have been anointed by the Spirit to proclaim and live out the gospel. And then God has stamped you with his personal seal to demonstrate that, that you belong to him and you serve as his authorized representatives. And the fact, Paul says, that the Spirit lives in us is the guarantee that we will one day be part of his renewed creation. Paul heaps all of these things one on top of the other so that we end up saying, wow, God is faithful. I can trust the gospel. See, if you're a Christian, your identity has been irreversibly established by God, not your critics. You see, if we respond with despair or we respond with defensiveness when we're criticized, it's because we're finding our identity in something other than what God says about us. So if if I find my identity in my work and I get up on a Sunday and I preach a sermon and I open up my email on Monday morning and there's a guy telling me how much he hated my sermon. Right? If, if that's the root of my identity, then I'm going to probably either explode into frustration or I'm going to spiral into self-pity. Right, despair or defensiveness. But if in that moment I remember that my identity before God is settled, that God has established, anointed, and sealed me with his spirit, then I can see the criticism for what it is. I can evaluate my life. And then, if necessary, I can defend the gospel. But if the attack's not on the gospel, then I can simply trust the Lord with it. See, all of us find our primary identity in something. And... One of the easiest ways for us to identify where we find our identity is to see where we are most sensitive to criticism. Like, where are you most touchy? I have three sons, and at least one of the three, who remain nameless, knows how to rile up the others. Right? He, he knows that thing that he can poke at to get them to respond. That, that thing that is most sensitive. Like, What's that thing for you? Where, where are you quickest to defend yourself? Or where are you most likely to feel crushed? Maybe it's criticism from your family or criticism about your family. Could it be that that's, that's your primary identity? And so that's why you're so sensitive if anything even slightly negative comes. Maybe it's your job. Maybe you're really sensitive about how you look. Or some skill you have. 
or a success or, or maybe a failure. And until your identity is found in Christ, you will constantly and consistently struggle with criticism because all of us build our identity on something. We build it either on Jesus or we build it on something we do or something we have. Like those are the only options, Jesus or something we've done or have. Let me just say, friend, nothing other than Jesus is strong enough to support you. Right? Nothing else, your, your dreams, your accomplishments, your good works, nothing like that can support you in the end. Christian, when you're criticized, you don't need to defend yourself. In fact, the Apostle Peter reminds us that when Jesus was unjustly criticized and condemned, he didn't respond. In fact, this is what Peter writes. He says, when he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. See, most of the time, we can respond to criticism by simply letting the Lord sort it out. But sometimes, and this is what Paul shows us here, when the gospel is at stake, we must speak up. And so the Apostle Paul receives this criticism. The first thing he does is he evaluates his life, and then he only speaks up when he realizes the criticism of him is spreading to the gospel. And so when criticism comes, the cross sees you, First, examine yourself, especially your motives. Then defend the gospel, not yourself. And third, act in love, pursuing joy. Act in love, pursuing joy. So having made the gospel clear, Paul now explains what led to his change of plans. And he shows how he made this decision out of love for the church and his desire for their joy. Look at verse 23. He says, I call on God as a witness on my life that it was to spare you that I did not come to Corinth. His motive is not self-centered. His motive is a deep love for them. See, he, he, he then explains further why he wanted to spare them a visit. So uh, apparently after writing 1 Corinthians, he receives a report from Timothy, sort of his, his mentee, the one that he has trained, he calls his son in the faith. He receives a report from Timothy that this church that that has received his letter, is really struggling. Struggling so bad, in fact, that he decides he's going to make a quick visit to them. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he describes this visit as painful. So they're struggling. He visits them. It's painful. This visit doesn't resolve anything. And so he follows up that visit with a letter. And notice, look at how he describes this letter in verse 4, chapter 2. For I wrote to you with many tears out of an extremely troubled and anguished heart not to cause you pain, but that you should know the abundant love I have for you. So he, he makes a painful visit. He follows it up with an emotional letter and then wisdom tells him, wait. Wait a while before visiting them. So a, a visit when he had originally planned would have been too soon. There wouldn't have been time for them to process. There wouldn't have been time for them to change. There wouldn't have been time for them to heal. So he made a judgment call, motivated, he says in verse 4, by abundant love for them. In spite of the criticism he's received, in spite of the need he has to confront them, his desire for them is simple. 
He's like, I, I, this is what I long for. I want to renew a relationship with you that is marked by joy and enjoyment. He says in verse 24, we are workers with you for your joy. Verse 2, he wants to be cheered up by time spent with them. Verse 3, because they can be such a source of joy to him. Like everything difficult Paul has said, every painful confrontation has been motivated by love and is intended to lead to joy. You know, true love is willing to have difficult conversations. I know that's not a popular thought. Right? Because sort of worldly wisdom tells us that when, if we're really going to love someone, if we really want their joy, then we will simply turn a blind eye to sin. We'll keep our nose out of other people's business. We'll keep our mouth shut about their choices. Okay, but the cross teaches us that's foolish. That is not love. Right? Real love takes the chance of short-term pain in the pursuit of long-term joy. Real love is often like a trip to the dentist's office. It's, it's going to be unpleasant. I mean, I don't know what kind of floss they use or what kind of arm workouts those nurses do, but I, I don't know how they can floss so violently. But yet, why do you go? Because there's, there's long-term health or your wife makes you, one or the other, but the goal, right, is long-term health. And so Paul's saying here, like, I'm being criticized for not coming when it was love that motivated me to stay away. Are you willing to have difficult conversations? Do you love those in your small group, those in your Bible study enough to say hard things. But I want you to notice this because this, there's a big difference here. There's a big difference between being willing to say hard things and enjoying saying hard things. Right? The Apostle Paul isn't rubbing his hands together in an evil laugh. <laughs> and he takes no delight in this conversation. In fact, he says, this is, you know what I long for? I want to visit you guys and I don't want it to be marked by stress and anxiety. I, I want to go on vacation with you. I want to laugh with you. I want to feast with you. Right? And it's this longing to enjoy you, to rejoice with you. That's what has led me both to make a painful visit and it also led me to skip a visit. Do you realize Paul could have taken a much different approach to what was happening in this church? Like Paul could have walked in one Sunday with his like official apostle badge. I don't know if they had one, but you could assume, right? And he could have wielded a scroll like a nightstick and just like, I'm going to just bash people's brains in. Right? He could have used his authority. I've been with Jesus. I'm an apostle. Like, I've, I've, I've gone toe-to-toe with Peter, and he had to listen to me. He could have used his authority to be domineering. Look at verse 24. I do not mean that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy because you stand firm in the faith. I think if there's a verse that describes how elders should minister, how I believe your elders do minister, right? It's this one. Elders do not lord over your faith. They don't carry a whip or a club. They are workers with you for your joy. 
Even when circumstances demand difficult conversations, the aim is always joy. So in a Wall Street Journal editorial decades ago, the writer made this observation. I I think it's profound. He said, people want to be lightly governed by strong governments. People want to be lightly governed by strong governments. Right? We want a strong government that will treat its citizens with gentleness. Right? This is what we desire in all authority figures. Right? We want dad. Like my dad can beat up other dads, right? But I don't want my dad to beat up me. I want my dad to hug me and to hold me and to be kind and gracious to me. But I want my dad, if ever needed, to protect us. And that's what Paul says here. He says, listen, I'm going to be strong on your behalf. I'm going to defend the gospel. I'm I'm going to stand up to that which hurts and harms you, but I'm I want to be gentle with you. And so even when he's criticized here, he responds in love. And he pursues his joy in the joy of those in the church. So I came across a little book recently that I, I liked it so much that I, I bought it. It's a, it's a book about national parks. It's filled with details and maps of each one, but that's not why I bought it. It's written by an artist who draws beautiful pictures of each park, but that's not why I bought it. Here's why I bought it. On each picture she draws of the parks, she adds a phrase from an actual one-star review of the park that she's found online. So I just want you to think about that. People actually review national parks and give them one star out of five. So in the chapter about the gates of the Arctic National Park, which you can just imagine, it's in Alaska, it's going to be beautiful, right? She's drawn this beautiful picture of snow-peaked mountains surrounding a valley, and then she's included this phrase from one critical visitor, mountains not nearly tall enough. So her picture of Yosemite National Park is a stunning landscape with sort of pine trees and granite ridges in the review. Trees block view and there are too many gray rocks. The Grand Canyon, a hole, a very, very large hole. My favorite might have been the Yellowstone National Park review that said, save yourself some money, boil some water at home. Right? It, it, this just goes to show the insanity of so much criticism. Right? Like one-star reviews of national parks. People will criticize anything. And sometimes it's silly and foolish, but rarely is it easy or painless. Even one-star reviews can hurt. You know, when a teacher criticizes you in front of the entire class for something you didn't do, right, that's painful. Or when a coworker blames you in a report for a mistake they made, or when your spouse doesn't take time to really listen to what happened, or when someone calls a church 
where people are loving and kind, unloving and bigoted simply because they believe the gospel, right? In those moments, our temptation is despair or defensiveness. And we're, we're tempted to respond this way because these are the ways that our culture tells us are appropriate, right? We're to fight for our reputation. We're to go on the offensive and attack. We're going to teach them, you don't mess with us. Or we drown our sorrow in distraction. We hide our emotions behind a video screen. We give up and find our identity in a new relationship, a new job, a new hobby, a new waste of time. And let me just urge you, brothers and sisters, to understand that criticism is an opportunity to be distinct. The way we handle criticism in light of the cross can be a powerful witness to those around us. So when we're criticized, we don't attack. We take time to examine our life and see, is there any truth to these charges? And if there's any truth at all, even just a speck, then the cross leads us to repent and seek forgiveness. If the criticism is unjust, if our motives and actions are right, then we don't seek to defend ourselves or to fight for our reputations. We ask how this criticism impacts the gospel and then decide how to respond. And we always act in love. We always act in love, seeking joy for ourselves and others. We don't act in self-interest. We don't pursue revenge. We don't try to destroy other people's reputations. We seek their good. And we do whatever is necessary, even difficult and uncomfortable things, for their long-term joy. See, the cross teaches us how to handle criticism. And it reminds us that all of our sins and all of our failures and all of our weaknesses were taken by Jesus. And it's his death and his resurrection that bring us vindication. And if he has accepted us and our identity is sealed by him, then no amount of criticism can destroy our future. That our future is secure in Christ. And our security in him because of the cross shapes how we handle criticism. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I'm sure there are some that are facing right now today unjust criticism. Maybe it's just a small thing that happened at home before they came. Maybe it's something at work or school that's been lingering. Lord, all of us will face criticism. And so much of it will be unfair. Certainly some will be just. And when it is just, help us to receive it honestly that we won't be defensive because we'll recognize that we are sinners and we sin. And so we will face just criticism and it's a call for repentance. But when it's unjust, Lord, help us to see it not as we are inclined to see it naturally, as a reason to attack or a reason to despair. Lord, help us to see it in light of the cross and help the cross shape our actions and our responses. And as it does, Lord, may it be a a powerful witness to the world around us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.